Hey, good morning. It's good to see you guys. It's been a long time. That that 30 seconds was tough for me too. I'm glad that you're here. Again, if we've not actually met yet, my name is John. I get to serve as a pastor here, and it's one of the greatest privileges of my life. And getting to see God at work in you and God at work through us as a church has been nothing short of incredible. I'm going on three years here, and it's one of the quickest three years of my life. I don't know how your last three years have been, but it's gone fast. Uh, It's really, really exciting. I actually woke up this morning with a song in my heart. Now, if you grew up in church, when someone says that, you're like, oh, do not give that person a microphone. (laughs) This could end very, very badly. But I'm going to start singing a song. I woke up thinking about it. And if you know it, I want you to sing it with me. Here we go. Three, two, one. Lean on me when you're not. Come on, you know this. You've seen the movie. I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on and forth. It won't be long, so I'm going to need somebody to... That sounds really good. Give yourselves a hand. That was smooth. That was like R&B smooth. All right, that was, that was good. Uh, the reason that song sticks in my brain so many times, like I, even in college, I remember singing that song, and it stuck in my brain because 99.9% of the time, I don't live that song out. Because I actually do the opposite of leaning on other people. I typically do the opposite sometimes of leaning on God when life gets really tough. I actually drift, maybe like you do, towards self-sufficiency. And our culture, which makes us so much more difficult, says that being self-sufficient, that living independent, that having kind of made your own life is actually the mountaintop. When you've got enough You've got the cottage, you've got the kids out of the house, you've got the jet ski, that finally you've arrived to where you can just enjoy life. That is the pinnacle. When you don't need to depend or lean on anybody, you've arrived. Now, obviously, as we've been journeying through the book of Mark, uh, I think I've discovered something about myself that's probably true of you. When it comes to self-sufficiency, when it comes to our resources, and I've had so many conversations with so many of you that I just know this is true. Secretly, all of us want to have enough. We want to have whatever that amount is so that we can actually become generous people. I believe that about pretty much every single one of you that I know, that there's a desire deep, deep down that you would become a generous person, that when it comes to your time, when it comes to your resource, when it comes to your talents and your abilities, that you would live kind of open-handed with those. You wouldn't be worried about, can I give or not? It would just be an overflow of your life. It would be something you're known for. When you walk into work, it wouldn't be the person uh, that does the analytics and the stats and the numbers. It's the person who's incredibly generous. When you're making the sales call, it's not the guy who always closes the deal. It's the guy that somehow is always generous. It's not the the parent who raises the perfect kid that everyone says, wow, look at their kids, they're amazing, but their entire family is known for being radically generous. It's a vision of a different life that so many of us secretly desire. I want to ask the question this morning, how do you move towards that? How do you get there? Because some of you are sitting in this room and you've experienced it firsthand. You are what I would describe as a generous person. And for all the rest of us, we have a lot of room to grow in this. There's a lot of room. There's a lot of potential for the kind of work God can do when it comes to our money and our time and our energy and how we spend that throughout the course of a year. There's a lot of room 
to grow. Uh, not shockingly, we're going to the book of Mark together. This is our eighth week journeying very slowly through the gospel of Mark. And just a shameless uh, plug for a gift we have for you today. Um, our team and our staff have worked really hard in creating this gospel of Mark devotional. It's a 40-day journey with Jesus. And whether or not you follow the Christian calendar, is, is not. To, I'm not concerned with that. But on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, begins this 40-day journey that most Christians around the world celebrate called Lent. And Lent is this journey of preparing ourselves for the culmination, which is an Easter, walking through the passion narrative of Christ and eventually arriving at the crucifixion on Good Friday and then celebrating the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. This, this journey, starting on Wednesday, uh, will take you day by day through the book of Mark so that you're walking through that journey the exact same time that this is taking place. And it's really exciting. And so this is here. It's free. If you want one, it's on the back table. Go grab it. If you're in a group and you're like, what do we go through? This is a great option. If you're trying to disciple somebody else or someone you know just got baptized or just made a significant faith decision, walk through that with them. Don't just take it and use it for yourself, even though I think that'll be incredibly helpful. Use it to mentor and disciple somebody else. Can, are we good with that? Perfect. So that's the gift. It's there. Go grab it afterwards. Um, right back where you can sign up for groups. It'll be right next to that. Uh, so anyway, as we're journeying through Mark, we're actually in chapter 6. So like I did, uh, don't turn to Song of Songs chapter 2. I'm not sure why my Bible was marked there. Get to Mark 6, okay? That will be a lot more uh, PG at the very least. Uh, Mark 6, starting in verse 6, here's what we read. Some of this will be on the screen. Some of it won't. Verse 6, then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. This is normal, right? Jesus does this. He moves a lot. Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the 12 to him. Again, remember those 12 ordinary disciples. Calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out. Send them out. He says, all right, you've grown up. You spent six chapters of Mark with me. Get out of the house. It's time to go do the things that we've been talking about doing. He sends them out two by two, and gave them authority over impure spirits. If you're me reading this, uh, if I'm in that moment as well, I would be really excited. I'm like, finally, I get to go do something. Maybe you're in the journey of college right now where you're looking into college and your life feels like it's in an eternal pause. And you're like, I can't wait to go on and do something significant with my life. Like, that's the kind of feeling these disciples probably had. And so he says, I'm sending you out two by two, giving you authority, preach the good news, heal people. Cast out demons. But then what happens next that Mark records is he gives these guys a packing list. This is weird. If you've ever been camping, you know that these are actually quite important, though. And in verse 8, these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Now, I sat with this text. I'm like, how do you preach a message on that? Like, this is weird. This is a very unique, like, uh, Pastor Brendan walked through the incredible story of uh, Jesus healing the woman with the blood disease and all this kind of stuff. Those are the good stories. But then you get to something like this. It's like, what is Jesus even saying? This seems like an odd footnote for Mark to include in the gospel story. But let's walk through it even more closely and see why it's significant. If you and I are packing on a long journey, how many of you travel for business kind of on a regular basis? Cool. So a few of you. How many of you have ever taken a vacation? I just want to make sure we all got our hands up. Okay, perfect. Uh, but as you know, when a vacation comes, if you're a really picky person like I am, you pack extra stuff. 
because I don't want to get stuck in a situation where I don't have the stuff I want. For me, that's cliff bars. I'm a granola bar nerd, and I will not go anywhere unless I have like a full stash. Like Lindsay and I went to Europe. We brought like 14 cliff, cliff this sounds really dumb to say out loud, 14 cliff bars with us because I didn't want to count on other people for what I was going to have for breakfast or for a snack or whatever. I was like, I just want to make sure I'm prepared. And that's kind of what Jesus is doing. I don't know what you normally bring, but Jesus is saying, here's what you need to bring. But it's a really lame list. Like he doesn't even give like an end date. He's not like go out one day and then come back. And you're like, all right, I can kind of rough it for a day. He doesn't give him that. He says, take nothing for the journey except a stick. I don't know how much you travel, but if you just brought a stick, you would look really dumb. And that's exactly what these guys essentially are doing. They're taking the staff, which would have been used for protection or helping them to walk up tough grade of hill, except a staff. But he says, don't bring any bread, no food. Don't bring a bag, so don't bring extra supplies or even extra space for food. And he says, don't bring money. Wear sandals and don't bring an extra shirt. Now, if you dig into the word shirt, it's actually kind of the word tunic, which would have been like a cloak or some kind of bigger blanket. Think like poncho type thing. And guys would have traveled with one of those to wear for clothing. They also would have brought an extra. Sometimes they'd wear it. Sometimes it'd be on a donkey. Sometimes uh, they'd make their loser friend carry it the whole way. I don't know. Like they always had an extra tunic, extra shirt, because typically you'd sleep with that. That's like your sleeping bag. It's kind of your de facto way of shelter when you're traveling through the wilderness. But Jesus says, just take one. Which, obviously, if you skip through the scriptures, that seems kind of insignificant. But when you think about it, Jesus is actually calling them, just like he was with all those other supplies, to depend on him. To trust him. To, to recognize that even if they don't have the extra tunic, they're going to have a place to put their head down. They're going to have shelter. They're going to be covered. One tunic instead of two. Don't bring a bra don't bag. Don't bring money. Don't bring bread. Depend on me. Now, for most of us, that flies in the face of how all of our life is oriented. All of our life in Western Michigan, America, is centered around two things, comfort and safety. <laughs> I want to make sure that I'm, my kids are going to the safest school, and I want to make sure that my house has all the, the essentials of comfort. I, I've got to have the nest Got to make sure that I can like talk to my thermostat and make it change. Like that to me feels like the most Star Wars thing in our homes. Like that you can just look at, basically look at something and change. Like it's crazy. All these modern technologies, and I'm not knocking modern technology. I, I love that stuff. And I'm renovating a house and that is my goal to make it feel like it's not 1963 anymore. Can I get an amen from anyone renovating a house? Like that is kind of the mode I'm in right now. But when that is a primary goal, it's really difficult to trust God. It's a whole idea of my, my mom, a couple years ago, bought a Mini Cooper Turbo. This car's sweet. Like, it was so awesome. Uh, but one of the most common cars in America is not Mini Cooper. It's actually Chevy, Chevy Suburban. How many of you even owned a Chevy Suburban sometime in your past? Yeah, I see a couple of hands. Uh, I know Lindsay's stepdad has had a Suburban that has like 470,000 miles or something insane on it. Like, he just drove that thing to the ground. It's one of the most popular cars ever sold in modern America. Now, I ride in a Suburban, and in my head, it is like the safest possible vehicle ever, right? Or you maybe have a truck that's lifted, or you've got like extra guards and things. 
when I'm in a big car, I feel safe. But did you know that big cars like Suburban are actually one of the most unsafe cars you could drive? Because if a semi is barreling at you, the, the slow response time of Suburban does not help anything. What you want is a Mini Cooper Turbo. You want a little something to get around, right? And I'm, I'm not going to go as far as like a Lego smart car. I'm not into that. Too small and I'm 5'8". That's too small for me. Uh, but that the kind of agility that you'd actually need. If a semi is barreling towards you, you'd rather be in something quick, something small, something fast where you can get around instead of literally getting pummeled by a semi truck. It's this whole phenomenon of active safety where you can do something about it and passive safety where you just kind of sit in the suburban 64-ounce Dr. Pepper in the thing like, oh, God, I please, I hope I don't die right now. <laughs> you just kind of brace yourself. It's the kind of difference. Malcolm Gladwell, author, writer for New York Times, long, long time ago wrote an article kind of studying this in different people's buying habits. I think it's really interesting, but I think if you look at a disciple's packing list, that's the difference. It's active safety where we're going to trust God. We're going to be agile. We're going to be flexible. We're going to have margin to we've got to pack every single thing we own and make sure that do that donkey can carry it, right? We got to make sure everything is packed up. And Jesus is essentially teaching them to trust in him, teaching them that for his mission, all you need is him, not a long packing list, not a, not a ton of safety nets. He just says, step out, trust me, depend on me, lean on me. And the journey wasn't all roses, by the way. See, if you're reading along in your actual physical Bible or a device, you can see kind of the next chunk of text is probably subtitled, John the Baptist Beheaded. That journey didn't go super well for them. Their best friend, John, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, ends up getting martyred for preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Things were not turning out very well. And so this happens. You fast forward, the crowds are pressing in. They're looking for something from Jesus. As we've read and listened and heard, Jesus was healing people. He was casting out demons. People were, were literally being raised from the dead. So read with me then. We're going to keep uh, returning to this story in verse 32 of chapter 6. Because this is what happens naturally. It says, they went away by themselves on a boat to a solitary place. Some of you love being out in a cabin all alone. This is, they're like, can I just get some peace and quiet? I just want to be alone. I want to be out there by myself. We need some rest. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot. Just picture the scene, right? Your kids are like coming home from school. They see Jesus. They're like, mom, I'm going. They're just booking it. Like it's wild. Like the neighborhood is just emptying out of their houses and garages and taking off toward this rabbi. They recognized them, ran on foot from the towns, and got there ahead of them. So when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, have you ever had, like walked into work and you see that person or that project and you just go, uh, like, I do not want to be here right now. Like, I don't know Jesus as well as probably I could, but I have a sense that he felt like, are you serious? I kind of went to get away from all of you crazy people. And now you found me. You're on the other side of the lake. You're here. Just that human feeling of, of disappointment. Well, when Jesus landed, saw the crowd, he actually had compassion on them. He wasn't frustrated. He wasn't aggravated. He wasn't annoyed. He wasn't disturbed. He broke with compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So by the time it was late in the day, the disciples come to him and this is a remote place, they said. It's very late. Code word for 
we could leave these people and go somewhere else and not have to worry about them. Like we tried to get away. It didn't work. We should find a new location. So they say, send the people away. They can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. <laughs> leave, right? Like you guys maybe go to this, go get your meal, go get your food. Leave us alone is essentially what the disciples are saying. But Jesus flips this conversation on its head. Look what he says next. But he answered, well, you give them something to eat. I don't think that's what any disciple is expecting to hear. Like it would have made logical sense. Send them back to where they're from. Like let them go to the market and buy some food. Even if they want to come back, let them have it. So they say back to him, Jesus, that would take more than half a year's wages. If you're taking like our community's income, that's like 40 grand. Jesus, this is taking like $40,000 for us to feed these thousands of people, their kids, their dogs, their pets, or whoever, like all these people that are here, this is going to be a significant thing. And we're a bunch of teenage fishermen, and we don't have $40,000. We do not have the resource to pull this off. So look what Jesus says after they say, are we supposed to go and spend all that on bread? Jesus replies back, I love this question. He says, how many loaves do you have? How many do you have? Jesus knowing that they don't have $40,000 worth of food. Jesus knowing they don't even have $20,000 worth of food. Jesus knowing that they don't even have more than a couple meals on them. I mean, Jesus told them, don't take a lot of stuff for the journey. I'm going to take care of you. And then he asked, what do you have? They're like, Jesus, did you not read the packing list? <laughs> I don't have a lot, okay? I'm also throwing bread, money, bag. I've got sandals. That's about it. Like, if you can cook up those. But other than that, we don't have a lot of supplies to offer you here. So Jesus asked, how many loaves do you have? He asked, and then he said, go and see. Go and find out what some other people have. And so some versions of this exact story, they essentially stumble across a teenage, basically in the scriptures called a lad, like a teenage kid who's there, maybe with his parents, maybe alone, maybe his mom said, just swing by the local Moroccan McDonald's and pick up one of these things and take it with you and be fine. This smells so enticing. This is real food in here. I just picked it up this morning. Now I'm like interested by the box. This is, this is bad. Focus. But essentially Jesus says, go out and see. And so they go and they find what they, what they find is essentially something like this. It says, when they found out, they said five. We got five pieces of bread and we have two fish. We've got this. That's what we got. We got a, hap a glorified happy meal. That's what we have. Now, Jesus, in, in my mind, and I'm a, I'm a processor, I'm, I think logically, I think in a straight line. So you said there's thousands of people, and I'm estimating this is going to cost tens of thousands of dollars to feed them. And you're saying, what do you have? And I'm saying, that's what I got. This is what I have. Some of you feel that way about your own lives when it comes to generosity. It's not enough, Jesus. This is all I got. I'm not giving 10%. I can't even give one. I can't even give three. I can't even give five. Or maybe you give 10. You're like, I definitely can't give 20. When it comes to tithing and, and sacrificing a little bit of our money, it's like, well, I don't have that much. Look what Jesus does with this. Watch what he does. Jesus directed them all to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat in groups, hundreds, fifties, taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks. He lifts this glorified happy meal in the air, breaks the bread, then he gives it to the disciples to distribute to the people. 
He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate. Not five loaves, two fish worth. It says they all ate. Thousands of people. We're talking massive crowds. They all ate and they were satisfied. Again, satisfied is not like, yeah, we just had like a sliver of the fish. It was like, we're full. Like some of you had some good meals this weekend and you left full. You took that nap because you were full. Thanksgiving, you get full. They were full. They were satisfied. So the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Does anyone want this? Happy moment? I feel like I just knew you wanted that. You were staring at me really weird. <laughs> Enjoy it. But they take that happy meal. They take the five loaves, two fishes. They take the little that they found, that they had, that was accessible to them. They give it to Jesus. He multiplies it. Thousands are fed. Miracles are wrote about. We're reading the same story today. Thousands of people's lives were radically changed. But here's what I think we wrestle with when it comes to generosity. See, I think most of our, and, and this certainly was me for such a long time, my common definition of generosity was losing something I have so God can have it. Like, I've got to give up something I have just so that God can have it. It felt like this very transactional, very odd. When people talk about tithing in church, I'm like, are you crazy? You're trying to tell me that God is all-providing and all-powerful, but he still needs me to give like 1% of my income to him? I'm not doing that. That doesn't make any logical sense. And it felt like I was losing something. That he was outstretched every Sunday morning, like, come on, give me, some, give me some of that back. I know you worked hard, but give me some of that. I know you worked hard, but I want 10% of that. And I didn't understand it. It felt like I was losing something I have. Friends, if you want to move to a generous life, here's what we do. We reframe that. We reframe what giving really is about. Giving moves from losing something I have to really what giving is, what generosity becomes, and how we understand it in the scriptures is giving is actually just trusting God with what he already gave me. I'm not losing anything. I'm, I'm entrusting back to the one who first entrusted me with resource, with a job with provision, with resources, with energy, with time, with my finance, with my investments, my savings. It's just giving back what he's already given me. When he gives them that packing list, essentially the, the lack of packing, the lack of luggage, is his way of saying, you got to depend on me. Don't worry about bringing a both tunics. Like, I'll give you a place to stay. When he, when he says, feed these people, he's not thinking, I know these guys can't get it done. What I think Jesus is thinking for is what are they going to offer? What will they give? Are they even willing to step out and, and to trust that I can make something incredibly miraculous with just a little bit that they find in the Happy Meal? Depend on me. Give what you have. Because ultimately, Jesus is not just about those miracles in and of themselves. He wasn't even just about teaching these guys how to pack more efficiently. Jesus is not trying to make all these guys minimalists. Jesus is doing a greater work because eventually Jesus would leave and the Holy Spirit would come and he would entrust his entire mission and his church to us. And he's looking for people he can trust. He's looking for those who will decide that it's more important to give than to receive. It's actually more important to become a generous person than it is to be safe and to be comfortable and secure because no one is going to stand up at any of our funerals and say, I'm so glad he got that awesome house 
I'm so glad that he finally got the Escalade. I'm so glad that the nest egg was just double what he ever planned. We'll tell stories of when we risked it all. We'll sit around our family table and we'll tell stories of when things got uncomfortable, but God was faithful. We'll tell stories of when we didn't think we'd ever see healing, but we got healed. When we stepped out and we trusted God with what he's given us. I love, absolutely love how Mark Batterson, the author, wrote so, so many books. He's a pastor out in D.C. He writes about this miracle and says, all of us love miracles. And I'm in that boat. I love miracles. But he says, we just don't like being in situations that necessitate one. Right? We're laughing because that's 110% true. All of us love the miracle. We love reading about the story of the 5,000. But if Jesus was saying and asking us, what do you have? What do you got? Because I can use whatever you have. But I won't take it from you. I'm not going to rob you. I want you to be a steward. I want you to step into that relationship. I want you to deep down, just trust me. So my question as we wrap up here is just, how does God want to stretch your faith this week? What is he doing? What is he up to? You know, if you've been around church the last couple weekends and got this in an email, we're actually preparing for something this coming Sunday called Benchmark Sunday. It's a chance for all of us to step out, to depend on God, to say, God, here's what I have. Now, it may be 1%, that may be 5%. For some of you, that's starting to tie. That's 10%. And some of you, you've, you've done that faithfully for decades, and God wants to stretch you beyond that. And again, it's not about the amount. It's about the proportion. It's about the percentage. It's about, am I willing to trust God with a little bit more? Just what I have. And for you, that may not be that much. But Lindsay and I are going to commit to sit down and to pray and discern about what, what else does God want us to give? because we're giving right now more than we ever have, I'm going to tell you right now, that doesn't mean we've got all the comforts we wanted. But we're in the center, pardon the pun, uh, the center of what God really wants to do and when he makes us generous people. It's just trusting him with what we have. We're doing renovations. There's some renovations we don't get to do because we made a decision that there's more important things, that there's a mission that's bigger than is my house going to look great or not. There's a mission bigger than do I feel comfortable. There's a mission bigger than uh, am I going to have all my T's crossed and dies audited. There's a bigger mission at stake, and it's ultimately what God has sent us to be a part. The move of reframing generosity ultimately is the change from I really hope someday to be generous. I've said that. I would, I, one day I want to hope to be generous. It's the move from that to actually being a generous person. It's a transition we make internally to say, God, I recognize that generosity is not just losing what I have so you can have it. It's actually giving back what you've given me. It's trusting you in a way I haven't before. Can I tell you one of the deepest joys of being your pastor over the last three years has been? It's been sitting across the table from you at a lunch or over coffee and hearing how God has used tithing and giving to stretch your faith. Not because I'm like a money fiend, by the way. <laughs> Money kind of scares me a little bit. Money's confusing to me a little bit. Luckily, I'm married to like an accountant ninja. Like she's got it figured out. My mom's a CPA. I'm in good hands. But for me, money feels very stretching. When I give it away, it does sometimes feel like I'm losing something. I've even set like generosity goals for the last couple of years. I've not hit them because it's a little frightening to me because I know that that's an area God wants to stretch and pull my faith. But sitting across from some of you, you just say, man, I wish people could understand the joy of that. 
And every one of you that started tithing and giving at some point in your spiritual journey, every one of you had to make a decision. Am I going to leave the safety and security of knowing that, that I've got 100% of my money and I get to 100% decide? And when you, you set aside that portion, you're essentially saying, God, I trust that you can do more with my 90% than I can do with 100. I'm going to be willing to step out and trust you with what I have. And, and again, you're all sitting here today fully provided for probably a roof over your head, probably a nice car, probably enough money. You're able to go out to eat. Like you haven't sacrificed that much. And when you look at it, because you look back and think, I can't give that amount of money. And that's why we're doing next weekend to prove that when we do that together, when we're all in, God can do exponentially more through us. So I want to pray for you because I know that this is such a personal thing. And some of you, when you hear money in church, it's like, why did I come today? I wish you would have told me. Like, but others of you, it's a great joy. And I don't want to minimize that. You've actually found more and more life the more you've given. You've actually found what it means to, to lay down your life for the sake of God's kingdom through generosity. You've, you've learned what it means to trust God even when it may be a little bit difficult. And so I want to pray for wherever we're at on that spectrum and ask God to move in a powerful way through it. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you that in moments just like this, you've given us the agency to make a decision about what we'll do with this message. And just like the disciples, when it comes to our resources, when it comes to our investment, when it comes to our own money, you just simply ask, what do you have? Because we're... We answer that question ultimately determines where our heart is at. So God, I pray right now for the person who is scared to be generous, to make the move. Even as we talk about Benchmark Sunday, who's like, that terrifies me. God, I pray that this week you would tangibly remind them that you are actually their provider. It's not a job, it's not a paycheck, it's not a sale, it's you. I pray that their level of trust would go so much deeper than it ever has. And God, I just sit here and celebrate. I, I honestly say thank you for giving us disciples, for giving us followers of you right here in this room who have learned the joy of generosity and whose lives have been deeply transformed through it. I pray that even as we approach Benchmark Sunday this next weekend, for them, you would do something miraculous in them as well that you would stretch their faith, that we would depend on you in a new way. And God, apart from money, apart from resources, if we're honest, there are a ton of situations right now in our brain that we are tempted to live out independently, to be self-sufficient, and your invitation through the cross, through your mission, through the gospel of Mark, just trust me, depend on me. I'm trustworthy, I'm a good father. You can rest on that, you can bank on me. And so God, help us to do that. I need you, we need you. Our lost family and friends need you. We're praying that through this radical act of generosity and through this new perspective, 
that we would see kingdom fruit, that our lives would be changed, that our families would be changed, that our neighborhood would change, that our cubicle would be different, that our office would be marked by you, that when we pay the bills, it wouldn't be stressful to actually be, look at what God has done, look at how he's provided again. So we trust you with that work, God. We thank you that because of your work on the cross, we have hope. We have healing. You provide. We love you and pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.